There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If, like me, you grew up in the 80s and 90s, today's guest needs no introduction. Ow! Buddy. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today I am joined by the weasel himself, Polly Shore. There was a time when Polly Shore was pretty much the most famous person on the planet. He followed up his massively popular MTV show, Totally Polly, with a string of comedy hits that included Encino Man, Son-in-Law, In the Army Now, and Biodome. Then he more or less fell off the face of the earth. Now he's back with a new movie called Guest House and a podcast, Polly Shore's Random Rants, where he talks about whatever happens to be on his mind that week. We get into all of it on this episode, from his unique childhood growing up in the comedy store in L.A. to his unlikely rise to fame and ultimate fall into semi-obscurity. I thought it was a fascinating conversation that you are not going to want to miss. So here it is, me with Polly Shore. So what's going on? Are you in LA now or where are you at? No, I moved to Las Vegas. Oh, wow. How's that been going? I like it. Yeah. How long ago did you make that move? I've been here almost two months. Yeah. What's the kind of vibe in Vegas right now? Well, it's a lot happier than in LA as far as like the governor, you know, restaurants, gyms, a lot of stuff's open. You know, the, all the hotels are open, most of them. And uh, LA is too sensitive for me right now, you know, and I've been there my whole life and it was just kind of time to try something new. Too sensitive in terms of everything being shut down and closed and everything? Yeah, it's crazy, you know? Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm in LA and um, yeah, everything's been very shut down for quite a while. It's hard to know what's, what's the right thing, but it's crazy. Yeah, so uh, I'm fortunate enough I'm able to pack up and leave. So I did that. I don't, have a, I don't have wife and kids and a lot of responsibility. So I'm like, am I allowed to swear or no? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was just like, you know, I'll get a, a nice house and finish some business in LA with some other stuff, you know, some real estate stuff. And uh, I think when Vegas opens, it's going to be good for me, meaning like there's so many stages out here. It's America. I'm America. You know, you feel like it's more your your scene there in terms of the crowds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, though, as you said, you really you you've been in L.A. You're so associated with L.A. and California for your whole life and career and growing up there. So it must be strange on some level to all of a sudden not be a, a Californian anymore. It is and it isn't. I mean, it is because what you just said, but it isn't because of what's going on. California is not California. California represents freedom and represents good times. And, you know, everyone's outrageous. And it's just it's pretty much the opposite of that. So I represent 
represent California. So I'm, I like to be outrageous. And so at least with my podcast and all the online stuff that I get to do, I'm able to express myself in my home and do all my projects here. I could be crazy and have a bigger space, more land, more, you know, I have a pool, I have private, I don't know, change is good. You know, this is a big curveball. Everyone's been thrown. My guess only the strong survives is a you have to shift. Life is about shifting. And, and for whatever reason, we all got thrown this situation. So we all have to kind of shift. I mean, look at us talking on the internet as opposed to me being with you. I used to do all of these in the studio and I liked it a lot more when I was doing that than talking to people on Zoom. But this is what we got to do for now. These are the rules. So you got to play by the rules, right? Yeah. So I want to kind of talk about a lot of stuff in your career, but I did want to start with this movie that you have coming out, uh, Guest House, which I thought was was really fun kind of return to form in a way for you of like this return to a type of movie that really made you famous back in the day. But the interesting thing that I thought was you're kind of playing it from an older perspective now where used to be that you would really be kind of clashing in these movies with older people. And now you're clashing with sort of younger uptight people. So was that kind of a, a strange, a strange reversal for you to, to do it that way? Well, I'm just fortunate for me that whatever I did 20 years ago is still somewhat relevant. So, you know, my style is my style. You can't, there's people that have tried to emulate my style or like kind of do a version of me, but I'm very happy that the movies that I did back in the day has 20 years later still. So I'm able to now I'm like an older version of who I was back then. But like you said, putting me around conservative people that are kind of uptight is the best kind of formula for my style. You gotta be out by the end of the day, okay? If you need help paying for a hotel or, fuck or anything, I'll help you out. But dude, you crossed a line, all right? Passing out in front of our house? Sarah is pissed. And I'm with her on this one. Yeah, well, you tell Sarah when it comes to tenants' rights in California, it's always pro-motherfucking-tenant. Guess what I am, bro? Huh? I'm your motherfucking tenant. God damn it, you're beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this movie is the kind of thing where they were looking for, you know, they wrote it with, you know, a Polly Shore type in mind and then ended up with Polly Shore. Is that how it worked or was it, were you involved from the beginning or? Because they originally just offered me a small part in the movie, like to, yeah, to play like a cop or something. And they wanted me in the movie. And then once I read the script and started figuring out what this movie was about, then the director, Sam, called me. If I remember, I was like at the Whole Foods and like, Kentucky or something. And he's like, you know, I want you to play the cop, but he's like, fuck that. Like, I want you to be the lead. And I was like, whoa, you know what I mean? That's pretty cool. So then I had to take 10 steps back, kind of read the script and see if I can make the character, you know, who isn't really a likable character and make them likable. And that's kind of where I put my experience in, you know, the character in the film and kind of putting my touch so you can make this guy that normally would be unlikable, likable. And I think, I think we accomplished that. And what about sort of the dynamic on the set with these much, you know, younger actors who probably grew up watching your movies? Was that strange at all to, to be, you know, around these people who, who know you from their childhoods, really? Well, I don't know. It's just interesting how life is, you know, you um, rewind 20 years ago, I was them. So then I was with kind of older, kind of iconic people on my sets that I'd grown up with. And then here we are, these younger kids that grew up with me and they were working with me. That's how fast life goes. It's one boom, all of a sudden 20 years later. So yeah, it was cool being the older guy. And that's what I'm kind of excited about 
on the film, I think the younger kids that see this movie, they're going to be like, oh, my God, that guy's fucking crazy. He's fucking wild. Who is that? And the parents are going to be like, um, that's Polly Shore. <laughs> yeah. And he was in these movies that I grew up with. And hopefully the parents will turn the kids on to my older films and the kids will be like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like it's the same brand, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I want to go even further back if we can, because, you know, this podcast is primarily uh, about comedy and you have such a fascinating story in that you really grew up at the comedy store in L.A. And, you know, with your mom running it and your and your dad was a stand up as well. So what are sort of your earliest comedy memories of growing up in that world? I mean, we could be here for hours. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I don't know. You know, my mom and my dad starting the club in the 1970s. My dad was like the MC on stage and my mom would take tickets. You know, it was very mom and pop type situation. It was the 70s. It was, wasn't just the comedy store. It was a Sunset Strip. It was the era. I mean, if you watch Eagles documentaries or, you know, those older documentaries, that's kind of like what it was, but in the comedy space. And, you know, I was four years old right there sitting on my mom's lap watching Red Fox and Pat McCormick and Craig T. Nelson and, uh, you know, obscure comedians that you've probably never heard of that never really made it. Lenny Schultz, you know, Natural Gas. There was a lot of, um, you know, at the time when I was in it, it didn't seem that weird. But the older I've gotten away from it, speaking to people like yourself, I realized that that time capsule was pretty different and very unique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a formative way to, to grow up and such a unique way to grow up. Were there favorite comics that you to watch for you that you really latched onto or, or really connected to in terms of just watching them on stage? Well, my favorite in the 1970s was a guy named Lenny Schultz. And um, he was kind of Gallagher before Gallagher was Gallagher. So he would do the props and the food and smash shit. And unfortunately for Lenny, all his tapes got lost. So his manager lost all his fucking tapes. So if you Google Lenny Schultz online, there's not a lot of stuff. But you could definitely see some of how crazy he was, you know. And what about sort of as you as you got older? I don't know. All the guys, Paul, Paul Rodriguez, I loved him. Jim Carrey, Roseanne Barr, Arsenio Hall. I mean, they were all like... You know, stars in the making, Gary Shandling, Howie Mandel, you know. You got to see them before they blew up in, in, most, in most cases, right? Yeah. Before anyone else knew about them. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that was great about the store is you had Mitzi Shore and she was the, um, I guess, the Hugh Hefner of the club, you know, <laughs> so she would kind of develop these comedians. And, you know, there was there was a focus. There was a uh, kind of like how it was back in the day. You know, if you wanted to get in the business years ago, there was no Internet. It was basically, you know, you fly to or drive to California and you work as a waiter and get an acting class and you get a part and it it was just very simple. And that's how it was for 40, 50 years of Hollywood. And the second the internet came, all hell broke loose, you know? To yeah, totally changed. I know you've talked about Sam Kinison being a, a mentor of yours. And you, you joke, you know, on stage that he, he babysat for you. Is that true that he babysat for you? And what was that situation like? Well, I don't say he babysat me. I mean, <laughs> he had the drugs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was 14 years old when he came out. Okay. So if you're 14 years old, if you think back, you're very influential. You know what I mean? You're very, you're like a sponge. 
So when he showed up on the scene at the Westwood Comedy Store, he was just this guy that was kind of homeless looking. And my mom would put him on last and he would scream. And, and I used to be a short order cook at the Comedy Store in Westwood back then. And um, I was just fascinated by Sam because he was real. I mean, he'd been divorced several times. And when he screamed, it was a scream of freedom. Like he's free. Oh, oh, oh. You know what I mean? Like he's, he represented the man that was in relationships with women where the women cheated on him, you know, or, or the woman, you know, treated the man bad. So Sam came out to California and he, he felt free. And that's kind of where the scream came from because he'd been kind of suppressed, you know what I mean? And being a sponge, what do you feel like you you took from him that really carried through to your own comedy work? Always listen to the audience. And then also don't be mean to hecklers, just kind of kill them with kindness. That was the one thing that I really learned from him and Richard Pryor was just to be likable. That was to me, their biggest quality was their likability on stage. And that was what I think I took from them mostly is, is I feel when I'm on stage and MTV days and, you know, I'm likable. I have, there's a connection that I have with people. And I think that's literally the most important thing. Obviously you have to be funny, but I think it's really important to come across, you know, like a nice person and then go crazy on stage and do your stuff. But I just liked how you never knew what was going to come out of their mouths when they hit the stage. You didn't know there was never like, Oh, he's going to open up with that joke. You know, it wasn't like Seinfeld or Chris Rock, you know, these guys that are, are like, you know, if you watch Chris Rock, he's very, he's ready to go. Boom, yeah, boom, 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 very boom, boom. Very deliberate, boom. yeah. And, you know, what, which works for Chris, but that wasn't, you know, Sam and Richard were like, you know, even if you watch some of Richard's early, like, stand-up specials, like, he's on stage and some fucking guy comes up to him with the camera and he's like literally in the front row and he's going like, take a picture. And instead of the bouncers grabbing the guy and throwing him out. Richard kind of just played with them for like five, 10 minutes and it turned into this great bit. So that goes along the lines of kill your hecklers with kindness. Don't go after them like in a defensive way. When was the first time that you got on stage to perform? Well, when I was really little, I was probably like 10 or some shit. And I was down in La Jolla Comedy Store. And Argus Hamilton, who's a comedian who was dating my mom at the time, he had brought me on stage. And um, he was doing some, like some Ben Crosby bit or some shit like that. And he brought me on stage as Nathaniel. And he goes, look at Nathaniel. He's here. He's got no navel. Nathaniel, do you have anything to say to the audience? And I just said, like, eat shit or fuck. Or I said something like that. And it didn't get a laugh. No one laughed. It was like, oh, my God. And, and they thought, the audience thought that those comedians told me to say that. Yeah. But I they said it myself like that. <laughs> just because those are the words that I heard as a kid. Yeah. And that you knew got, could get a laugh, maybe. I didn't know if I was going to get a laugh. That's just I just knew how to swear because there was a lot of swearing that went on in my house. Mm -hmm. Your performing at the comedy store did lead to MTV, right? There's a connection there? Yes. I was hot. You know, I was 19 years old. You know, everyone was talking about who's this kid. MTV was the hottest thing. My manager got me an audition. I just actually auditioned for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, really? Which is about yeah. to have a, a new one coming out <laughs> yeah. this fall. If you go online, they actually just released my audition tape. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm going to look so that up. If you see it, it's pretty funny. They, you know, they release like audition yeah. tapes. Yeah. So they Maybe. had me auditioning <laughs> with Alex Winters. It was my first audition. And I literally got all the way to the end. And I never acted before in my life. Between you and Keanu. It was between me and Keanu. Yeah. So yeah, MTV saw me at the comedy store. They asked me to come to spring break. I flew, they flew me to spring break. 
it didn't go so hot. I was pretty nervous and green. I think I was 19 or 20. And then I just went back to the drawing board and started writing my stand-up and working my act and getting my confidence up. And then they fam- finally, we did a, a show called Comic Strip Live. We sent that to MTV. MTV saw that tape. And then they said, well, he's ready now. And then it just kind of snowballed into kind of like the biggest thing in my career, which was totally poly. Yeah. Was the weasel character something that you developed on stage? Or was it something that really came out of the MTV stuff? I don't even know. It was just kind of like kind of combo i think it was like uh i don't know it was just kind of like whiz so oh oh you know what i mean it just like fucking it just happened i mean i had different comedians and different friends call me weasel but then i was the one that said weasel and grind ditch and major and all that shit and it just kind of like developed on mtv and it was either going to be a hit or or a disaster because no one really knew what the fuck i was saying and i definitely didn't know what i was saying or doing because i was you know a kid i was on mtv do you have good memories of of that time in your life on mtv or do you is it kind of a blur or how do you think about it no i felt like willy wonka yeah i felt i couldn't believe it i was in shock i mean it was it didn't seem like a job it just was fun you know what i mean and and that's kind of like all the movies i did and all the stuff i did it was just fun and yeah i took it serious and believe it or not i wasn't on drugs and i wasn't drinking during filming mtv uh, i maybe had a couple of drinks at spring break but other than that when we were filming i was just once the camera rolled we were we was on we were doing it and i was in heaven i was very very fortunate right place, right time, right network, right era. Is there sort of a a most surreal memory either from spring break or maybe the VMAs or something that stands out in your mind now? I mean, I remember backstage watching Axl Rose get in a fight with Kurt Cobain. (laughs) That's pretty big. That was pretty fucking wild. I remember Pee Wee Herman coming out on stage after he got caught jerking off and his, and he was like, yeah, he comes out on MTV. He's like, do you hear any funny stories lately? (laughs) Yeah, I I remember that. That was great. Yeah, so I was there. And, you know, Eddie Murphy, you know, was the biggest thing back then when he did Raw and Delirious. And um, and then obviously the spring breaks were pretty awesome. My experience there, because if you remember MTV back in the 90s, spring break was like, it was it. It was the biggest thing. So I was able to go down there and have my own show that I hosted called Chillin' with the Wheeze. And that was pretty awesome, too. So... And then obviously the first big movie was Encino Man, which I think still is really beloved. How did that change your life even further than than being on MTV? Another level. It was just another level. It just was a cute movie. It did really well at the box office. I was in heaven. Okay, my friend. Try and experience what I'm about to chirp in your lobes. Okay, cool? Today, buddy, we're going to discuss grindage. Having filled the furnace, packed the cheeks, and stuffed the gills. Okay? You're probably used to eating twigs, right? But out here in the U.S. of age, buddy, we got something called the four basic food groups. And Link, this is not one of them. Oh, look at what we have here. Dairy group. Milk duds. You hide these under your pillow, bro, so your mom doesn't find them. If she does, you're twig, buddy. Okay, keep on cruising. Fruit group. Sweet tarts. These are killer, buddy. So citrusy, dude, you'll freak. Keep on cruising. Uh-huh. Hey, this is the vegetable group. Vegetable group. Oh, corn nuts. Oh, put them on a pedestal, bro. Look at that. Yeah. Those are kill, huh? Meat group. 
like I said, it was Willy Wonka. It was thank God for the internet because now I can still be that guy and still like be crazy. And and that's what it was. It was the movies were, you know, and Encino Man was great. It was great. And I'm very fortunate, you know, that I got that opportunity through Jeffrey Katzenberg and Disney giving me a three, three picture deal. And all the movies did really well for me. You know, it brought me all over the world. Yeah. What were those first? The first three were Encino Man, Son-in-Law and Biodome? Or? The Army movie in the army now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, son-in-law was one of my personal favorites. I think partly because I had a huge crush on Tiffany Amber Thiessen, but <laughs> Oh yeah. Again, it was funny. The director of that movie is a guy named Steve Rash and he directed another comedy called can't buy me love. I don't know if you remember that one in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. With Patrick Dempsey. And it was a really good movie. And I remember saying to him on the set, I said, do you think this will be as good as Can't Buy Me Love? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and laughed, like almost like he's just doing this for a paycheck. Kinda. Yeah. Oh. Like he was like, yeah, OK, come to find out this was bigger than that. So for me, I love I want to stay in my lane. I just want to make people happy. I love creating. You know, it's part of the reason why I'm alone and I don't have a wife and a girlfriend and all that. My heart is is making people happy. And my heart is like cre- trying to create something stuff. And till I find someone that really lets me be me and says, Hey, he's just off doing his thing. Like that's where his heart is. I'd rather be alone. You know, it's like a sacrifice. You feel like that's been a challenge? Yeah, of course. I understand where the girls are coming from. You know, when you're in a relationship, there's a lot of, you can't be selfish and I'm super selfish. Coming up, Polly talks about playing Stephen Miller on Funny or Die running into Donald Trump at spring break, and how he retook control of his career when it all came crashing down. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Another thing that you did sort of more recently that I wanted to ask about that I really enjoyed was uh, a couple of videos you did for Funny or Die uh, playing Stephen Miller. 
How did that come about? <laughs> he is a fucking nutbag, that guy. Unfucking believable. <laughs> this fucking guy. He's from Santa Monica and he's a Jew and he's fucking working for Trump. It's so weird. I mean, what a fucking weirdo. Funnier Die called me, Mike Farah over there. He says, you know, I did Anthony Weiner as well. I don't know if you saw the Anthony Weiner one. Yeah, I did that one. And they just, Mike Farah said, hey, do this. I said, let's knock it out. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, when certain people call, you just do it, you know? And then that took off and, and everyone really liked that. We did a couple of those, but um, I wish he would do more things so I can spoof him <laughs> more, you know? But he hides, like it's weird. Yeah, he only comes out of his uh, hole every once in a while, I think. Yeah, it's so weird. Like he's such an interesting guy. He's so nuts. Joining us now is the White House Senior Policy Advisor, Stephen uh, Miller. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. This will not go well. Good to see you. So President Trump and the White House have been calling the Rush investigation a witch hunt and a nothing burger. But obviously in this new Michael Wolff book, uh, Fire and Fury, uh, Bannon offered a different take on the Trump Tower meeting. That author is garbage. The book is garbage. But my forehead... That's not garbage. The president is now calling Bannon, quote, sloppy Steve. He's not, he's he not just sloppy Steve. The president also calls him rumpy Ralph, splotchy Sam, Louis Anderson from the show Baskets. There's several names that the president calls him, but you at CNN just report one name because you're fake news. We all know that. You're lucky I don't punch you in the face. Was there ever any talk about you doing it on SNL? I don't think they have a, a Stephen Miller that's, that I know of. They were talking about it, but I never got the call, you know? Yeah. There's always a, there's always rumors and things. And I was really surprised, actually, when I was looking back at your resume to see that you, you've never hosted SNL, right? No. Back in the day. No, I never did. I think it had a lot to do with my mom's relationship with Lauren Michaels. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the story there? I don't think there was a relationship. Hmm. They just, they didn't get along or there was, they... My mom was a certain way and I'm sure Lauren, I never met Lauren Michaels, but I'm sure he's a certain way and probably egos and West Coast versus East Coast. Biggie and, and Tupac, you know? Yeah, they wouldn't because I know they would they would come out to L.A. to do SNL auditions, but I guess they never did those at the comedy store. I don't know. Maybe they did them at the improv. I'm not sure. My mom was a certain way. And, you you know, you either loved her, or you know, you didn't. And if you didn't, you didn't. And I don't know. She was, you know, a certain way. I remember me and my mom used to walk up in the hill and Jerry Seinfeld lived up there. He's, he's not funny. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> Fucking New York comedians, go home. I think Jerry's funny, but it's very particular. It's very New York, you know? Yeah, and there were sort of comics who either did or didn't perform at the store, right? Yep. Yeah, that was your mom's kind of would have not just some, but a lot of control over that. Well, yeah, it's the same thing Hugh Hefner. You know, he controlled the girls that got naked in his magazine. My mom mm -hmm. controlled the comedians <laughs> that got on her stage. You know, that's how it was. That's how, that's how it works. Speaking of Hugh Hefner, um, I did hear you tell a story once about partying with Donald Trump at the Playboy Mansion. Did you see him do or say anything that you feel like the, uh, the American voters might want to know about before they vote this fall? That was just a joke. I never really oh, partied okay. with him. I mean... <laughs> Obviously, stuff coming out of my mouth, you don't know what's true and what I'm joking about. True, true. Yeah. I only saw him once at the Playboy Mansion. But you know where I used to see him is at Spring Break. Yeah. 
down with the Hawaiian Tropic Girls. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, down with the Hawaiian Tropic Girls and like, you know, Ron Rice and, and all that. You know, he was the thing with Donald Trump. It's like, you know, I voted for Hillary when he won. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, but then he just went south. He just fucking started doing all this crazy shit. And I'm like, what the? Why does he have to do all this stuff and say all these things? <laughs> yeah. Like, he's already got the job. Yeah, it's worse than you expected. Way worse. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? He doesn't need to say and do this stuff. But you know why he won, right? Why? Because of The Apprentice. That's for sure. Well, because he was on TV for 10 years. Mm-hmm. People knew That's that Middle way. America. That's Middle America, NBC. Man, that guy's funny, dude. He's got a cool helicopter, bro. <laughs> it's a shame. Have you ever talked about it with uh, with your Biodome co-star, Stephen Baldwin, who I know is a big uh, Trump supporter? No. No. He's nuts. You guys have drifted and drifted apart. No, I love Steven and Steven loves me. There's a, a love and a respect for one another. But he's, you know, Steven's one of those guys that he's sober. He found Jesus and I'm happy for him. I wouldn't say found Jesus. That doesn't sound right. He's all right. If he's happy, then I'm happy. So that's all that matters. Yeah. Going back to where we were in your career, I know you've talked about how your Fox sitcom, Polly, was kind of a, a big turning point. So, and you parody it so brilliantly in the, in the Polly Shore is Dead uh, movie. But from your perspective, you know, what happened there? Were you, was it just not the right move to do that, that project? Or how do you feel about it now? I was a guy and I'm still a guy that just loves to work. I'll say it again. I'm a guy and I'm still the guy that just loves to work. So this was an opportunity that came to us me and my manager and my agents. And I was like, fuck, they're offering me my own sitcom on Fox. It's called Polly. Let's make it work. It's a big fucking deal. It's a very big deal. Let's make it work. Instead of going, wait a minute, maybe I should stop while I'm ahead and not do this and leave them wanting more and just kind of like back off. But once again, I'm a guy that got an offer to do a sitcom, to star in a sitcom on Fox. And I figured I'd make it work in the writer's room. I'd cast it right. You know what I mean? But the problem was it was just a wrong, it was wrong. The, the concept was wrong and everything was wrong about it, you know, but I didn't see it at the time because I just didn't. I was blinded by the fact that, you know, I was going to try to make it work. You know what I mean? So I should have probably passed or, but I, I wanted to work. And you don't know. I mean, it could have been, it could have worked out differently. I didn't know. I didn't know. It was an opportunity that came to me. I mean, the star in my own sitcom on Fox named Polly. I was like, fuck, let's do it. You know what it, it should have been is probably closer to my, my real life, like a mom and a dad and a comedy club and comedians and shit like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's more of the style of what it would be now compared to then when it really was, you know, sitcoms or maybe this was kind of a turning point in, in sitcoms as well. Yeah. And also, you know, I got a little greedy and when I started looking at other comedians that were starring in sitcoms, I'm like, fuck, Roseanne's got a sitcom. You know, this person's got one. I want one. I mean, look at Roseanne. It was called Roseanne. It was the biggest hit in the world. That was her MTV, you know? So like you said, Polly Shore is dead so, so brilliantly. To me, that was the best thing I've ever done. There's actually a poster behind us. I really dug in, you know, my heart, my soul. I threw my checkbook out. I put my money into it. I did all the things you're not supposed to do when it comes to making a movie. But I had the money. It was sitting in the bank. And I'm like, fuck it. This is a good concept. And once I got Sean Penn, then all of a sudden the floodgate, floodgates just opened up. And then I got Whoopi Goldberg and Dr. Dre and Tommy Lee. And I got so many people and everyone understood the joke. 
Hi, I'm Kurt Loder with MTV News. Comic and actor Pauly Shore, known to fans as the Weasel, died in Los Angeles today of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The news hit the entertainment world like a big, tragic hurricane. He was amazing. You know, he was amazing, unlike any other comic. Pauly was deep. He had, like, layer, 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 layer. And that's something I always look for as an artist. I look for another artist that's got layers to them. And Pauly was... He was bundled in layers. Polly was the first person to bring me to the beach. I never would have got Baywatch if it wasn't for Polly. You know, he taught me how to mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitate people and um, use defibrillators, things like that. He did have good weed, though. I got to tell you that. Polly Shore had fucking good weed. I blazed with him a couple of times. You know, I smoked his whole sack up, and then I bounced with his girls and shit. But <laughs> at least he was good for something. I trusted the producers of the show and the directors of the show to make it, to make me kind of come across, you know, in a cool way. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also wanted to ask about the documentary that you made a few years back, Polly Shore Stands Alone, which is also just a, a kind of fascinating look into your life in a different way than, than Polly Shore is Dead, because it is, you know, a documentary and it's really following you around. And it's also pretty raw in a lot of ways. Why did you want to make that movie? And, and how do you kind of feel about that experience now? Well, at the time I was living with my mom and she was dying. So I didn't have a relationship with my siblings, my sister. I was by myself. So the only way I knew how to express myself is on camera. When you have no one except for your friends, I'm talking about close family members, as an artist and you're going through whatever it is you're going through, you either have to write about it in a song, you have to talk about it on stage or film a documentary about it. I mean, basically, I just wanted to show people who I was at the time in a very relatable place. I mean, anyone in their late 40s or 50s or 60s knows what it's like to have your parents die because anyone that's 40s, 50s or 60s, they're dealing with their parents dying. So who was I at the time? I was a guy that was on the road, touring, getting love from my fans while simultaneously taking care of my mom who's dying of Parkinson's. And I thought it was something I needed to do inside of here. You know, I needed to be able to vent, you know, whether it was on stage or with the fans or by myself in the hotel room, because I had no one else to talk to. <clears throat> so I talked to the camera. And I think it's just it's something I had to do, you know, it's just me and a camera. Yeah, no, it's it's really a fascinating movie. And one thing that really you get out of it is what it's sort of like to be you on the road getting constantly recognized by everyone who you meet, which must be such an odd thing. So how do you feel like you deal with that? And has it changed over the years, sort of how you receive that? I look at it as I'm fortunate that people recognize me, which means I actually made it in the entertainment business. Because if you're in the entertainment business and you're putting yourself out there and no one's recognizing you, then I don't want to say you failed, but you didn't make an impact. So the fact is, is that I've gotten under America's skin starting from MTV. So I'm very honored and, and thankful you know, I do this cameo thing. You see this? Yeah, yeah. So people actually, they log in and they, they want me to do shout outs to their friends and families of a wedding, an anniversary. It's like, yeah, they're paying me something to do it. Is it a lot of money? Not that really. But when I put my heart into it, 
and they write me back five stars. I'm like, oh my God, they can't believe, like, that's awesome. I have that gift and I'm so fortunate. So when I tour America and people approach me, uh, sometimes I get tired. I mean, there's certain times, you know, you don't want to be approached, you know, when you're taking a piss or you're eating and shit like that. But everywhere I go, mostly people know me. Thank God, knock on wood, it's for something that affected them that I did years ago. There's a connection, you know? The documentary really follows your stand-up tour, and you mentioned that you really are, you know, sort of more famous for the movies than you are for stand-up. Is there any part of you that sort of wishes you had pursued stand-up more seriously from the beginning, especially because you came from that stand-up world? I think I'm a great stand-up, but I'm not an amazing stand-up, meaning my jokes, my tags, my material. I don't think anyone has, I don't want to say this, I think I have pretty much as much confidence as anyone on stage, but my material isn't as good as a lot of comics. I think that's my issue. I don't think I'm a great comedy writer. I think I'm a good comedy writer, but I don't think I'm a great comedy writer. And if I started getting a whole bunch of writers to write my stuff, that'll take out kind of the flow of who Polly Shore is. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. On stage, it's a ride when you come see me. I don't know where I'm going, you know what I mean? I kind of just go. That's kind of like what my podcast is, Random Rants, or just, I just go, and then, you know, and obviously on stage, I have to have jokes and punchlines, so, you know, I insert them, I insert them. But, you know, my peers, you know, Dave Chappelle and all these guys are obviously a lot better than me, but I think I'm pretty good. I did want to tell you, you know, I know you lost both of your parents over the last couple of years, and I just want to tell you how sorry I am for your for your loss. And just, that's just really tough. Yeah, it's it's heavy. It's heavy stuff, you know. What's going on with the with the comedy store now? Are you involved in it? much or at all or my brothers are running it and i'm i just go on stage there and support what they're doing and stuff so yeah was it something where you wanted to be more involved than than you are or? i don't want to really get into that yeah just okay. because it's, it's a little sensitive yeah. you know family stuff i get it family stuff you know the comedy store is me there is no comedy store without me you know as far as here you know what i mean i'm i am the history pretty much me and my mom and my father so that's who i am that's that's my childhood so I hope it's doing okay and that, you know, in this time when it's, you know, not much you can do. And that's a lot of, I think there's comedy clubs all over the country that are obviously struggling. And I think a lot of them won't necessarily survive this. So that's a tough thing too. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. The comedy store will survive because the comedy store always survives. It's the uh, Emerald City for comedians though. It's almost like a... The Wizard of Oz, you know, where after the tornado, they're like, oh, shit, what's up? And then everyone will be back on stage, you know. I did some shows in Oklahoma and in um, June and then Seattle in uh, July, and people are starving to go out. It's not like they're going to find a vaccine and then no one's going to go out. People want to go out and fucking last. I mean, they really do. I mean, this is... They need it. Yeah, this is for the birds. Like, I'd rather be there with you, you know? like Yeah, no, absolutely. This whole Zoom thing is like, it's not how we're built. It's cute and it's cool once in a while, but we're Woodstock. You remember Woodstock, you know? Yeah. We got to be all together, so it'll happen. We got to just be patient, yeah. So before we end here, what I wanted to ask you is, is there a time when you look back at your career where you laughed really, really hard either on set or um, in a green room with with other comics? Or is there a time that you can think of with other people making comedy that you just really laughed really, really hard? I mean, we could be here for hours, you know? <laughs> what comes to mind? Opening for Sam Kennison, we were on this thing. I called it the Burger King tour because we would just stop at Burger King's drive throughs like the whole time. And I was with his brother, Bill. And it was the first time I had ever been in middle America. And I'd grown up in Beverly Hills. I can't 
stop fucking with people. That's just who I am. Like even now, like I'll go out, I'll see, I'll just start yelling at people because <laughs> that's my style. So Bill's like, don't fuck with these fucking people. They don't deal with your Beverly Hills bullshit. They're going to kick your fucking ass. And that made me even fucking laugh more. So just being out in middle America and fucking with people, you know, with Sam, those times were, were really, really special. Um, you know, he took me to Steak and Shake, which is a very famous kind of fast food restaurant in the Midwest. He introduced me to, uh, he goes, man, brother, this is Chili Mac three ways, brother. They don't make it like this anymore, and it's fucking disgusting. But you're like, yeah, it looks good, and you just fucking eat it anyways. But Sam's the one that really introduced me to America. He was the one that um, brought me out there. Because I had grown up in you know, West Hollywood and Beverly Hills my whole life. I'd never seen America. Now I feel America is more my home than Beverly Hills in L.A. I don't really relate to Beverly Hills in L.A. anymore. I mean, I'll drive by Beverly Hills High School and then, you know, I have fond memories of that place. But I'm America. I love America. That's why I'm in. That's part of the reason why I'm in Vegas. You know, Vegas is America. You're ready for America to get back to normal. Definitely. We got to start <laughs> high-fiving each other. And not doing this bullshit anymore. Thank you so much. I grew up on on your movies and and just really really love your your work and and have for a long time. So I really appreciate you doing this. Good luck to you in, in everything that you're doing. Thank you, and I appreciate asking me these questions and also uh, being interested in the stuff that I did. That makes me feel good. So well, I'm glad. Enjoy Vegas. Have fun. Later, dude. Peace out. Peace. Thank you so much to Polly Shore for being my guest on today's show. His new movie, Guest House, is available on video on demand everywhere now, and we'll put a link to stream it in the description for this episode as well. You can subscribe to Polly Shore's Random Rants podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please help us out by giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.